Welcome to Brain Chat with the Nerdy Neurologist. I'm Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams, and I'm your board-certified neurologist and MS specialist. My mission is to engage, educate, and empower those affected by MS to become an active part of their healthcare team. Here on Brain Chat, we'll be talking all things MS, health and wellness, advocacy, and we'll throw a little bit of music and music therapy in there as well. Thank you so much for joining us, and stay tuned for the next episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our second episode of Brain Chat with the Nerdy Neurologist. I am Dr. Mitzi Joy Williams. I'm your board certified neurologist and MS specialist, and my mission is to engage, educate, and empower those affected by MS to become an active part of their healthcare team. And I am so excited to be here with you guys for our second episode. Um, Our first episode of the podcast went live last week, so we're super excited. And you can find that Brain Chat with the Nerdy Neurologist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, pretty much wherever podcasts are seen. Um, So go back and listen to that first episode with Dr. Mary Hughes. All right. So Go ahead and don't forget to check out the podcast and subscribe, please, and tell us what you think. Drop some comments about it. So today is International Women's Day. Um, So uh, I celebrate all of the women in the audience um, who are just doing so much amazing work um, and just uh, taking care of everybody every day. And for International Women's Day, I have a very special guest um, that is uh, going to be with me today. And not only is it International Women's Day, it is the first Monday of MS Awareness Week. So I've got on my orange for MS. Um, And so we're going to invite our guest up, Dr. Latrice Landry. Okay. So Dr. Latrice Landry is a fellow who specializes in precision medicine and health disparities at Harvard Medical School, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Harvard School of Public Health. She is the inaugural, meaning the first, Food and Drug Administration's Genomic Medicine and Minority Health Fellow. She was recognized as a top 10 under 40 uh, by the National Minority Quality Forum in 2017, and that's where we met. And also, she was recognized as um, one of uh, the 40 rising stars in business and academia by the Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology in 2018. She finished her clinical molecular genetics fellowship at Harvard Medical School in the genetics training program in 2018, following the completion of her degree in biomedical informatics at Harvard in 2015. She is focused on health equity and precision medicine, and she is focused on the translation evaluation optimization and implementation of genetic technologies in diverse populations. Now that was a mouthful. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Landry. Hi there, Dr. Landry. How are you? I'm great. And thank you for that introduction. Um, it's always um, it's always humbling to hear someone read your bio, but thank you. Absolutely. Listen, job. you are the smartest. You are the smartest. So I'm just, I am happy to have you here. So we're excited. So we are going to hop right into it and start talking about um, COVID vaccine. And we're going to talk about it specifically in the MS population, but also in general. But first, let's talk about the pandemic in general. So we're a year in, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is right around the time where we started to, you know, realize that things were getting bad. Schools were starting to close down and our life as we knew it was changed forever. 
Where are we now, Dr. Landry, a year into this pandemic? Where are we generally? What's, what's the state of the union, so to speak, in terms of the pandemic? Well, Missy, thank you for that question. I remember when we were doing this, uh, a similar sort of scenario uh, on blackdoctors.org about a year ago when we were just starting and everyone was like, we don't know where this is going to take us. Um, and it took us some in, in some directions that we as public health ag, uh, uh, experts did not want to go. I mean, you know, some of the numbers got really high and scary at some point in both cases and in deaths. Um, and we've seen some peaks, you know, that were anticipated or predicted if we didn't change certain policies. That would be sort of peaks around Thanksgiving and, and, and Christmas and the holiday seasons where we thought people might be gathering together. Um, so I will say a year into it, we are at about 29.1 million cases in the U.S., um, and that has translated to over 500,000 deaths in the U.S. Um, in, in about a year that are attributed to COVID. So um there's a lot of uh, speculation and, and good science going on right now to sort of understand how many of those deaths and how many of those cases could have been avoided should certain um, precautions have been put in place. Um, in the world, there were different countries that did different things and, and had different outcomes. Um, but as a global uh, pandemic uh, coronavirus has shown us that it is not going away quickly um, and that we still need to be cautious and show precautions as we move forward. Um, now, that might have sounded dim and, <laughs> and I don't want to get <laughs> anyone sort of down and, and thinking where we are because there are some things to be positive about right now. Um, we have mm -hmm. not one, not two, but three vaccines. Um, that are effective, that are now being, uh, have now been approved by the Food and Drug Administration um, in the U.S. And so that is something to be extremely excited about. Um, in addition to having three vaccines, we have one vaccine whose both storage requirements and dosing requirements seems that it may be optimal for public health for our American population. So that would be the newest um, vaccine. And so people are really excited about that opportunity not to have that super cold storage that's required for the first two vaccines. Um, right. And so let's pause there. So just for clarification, you know, for those that may not be aware of this, one of the biggest drawbacks to the earlier vaccines is that they required very, very cold storage. So, you know, we couldn't just ship them everywhere and just put them in the fridge like maybe people do with the flu vaccine. People had to have special storage facilities um, or special storage containers that reached a certain temperature. And that was limiting for some areas that didn't have that technology. And so that limited in some cases who could receive the vaccine in certain parts of the country if they didn't have access to that technology. And also you had to have space to store enough for two doses of each vaccine. So um, solving the problem of not having to have those super cold refrigerators as well as only needing one dose um, could certainly increase or broaden how quickly people could be vaccinated in this country. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've learned is sort of in terms of the innovation that went into creating the vaccines, there were big hurdles. And there's a reason why that super cold storage was required. Um, and, and so the, you know, as a country, as a global community, we try to move forward and, and, and implement those vaccines where they where we could. But having something that doesn't require that is really important, sort of reaching underserved populations, essentially in this space, this is all about access infrastructure. And unfortunately, where we started last year, the, com the communities that are hardest hit are often the communities that 
had that infrastructure, those are also the communities that did, would not have access to the cold storage for those vaccines. Some of those are rural communities. Some of those are communities um, that are underserved for other reasons. And so, and and, and so, it, it's. I think we're we're hopeful now, um, but we still need to be diligent um, in in our efforts. So I love what you said. You said hopeful, but diligent, right? So hopeful because we've come a long way, right? Even in our understanding about coronavirus, there was a lot of, um, there is, there's still a lot of concern, but there was a lot of fear in the beginning, especially in the neurology community. People were having things like strokes associated with um, COVID-19 infections. And so we know how to treat it or at least address it a little bit better, um, but we certainly can't cure it yet. Um, you know, so, so there's definitely work that still needs to be done, but we are hopeful because we do have a vaccine, um, you know, several vaccine options. Now let's take a pause here and let's talk about how this vaccine was created, right? Whenever I'm talking to my patients, um, we spend a lot of time talking about how quickly the vaccine was created. There's a lot of concern that maybe corners were cut, that maybe things weren't done as thoroughly as uh, they normally would, because usually we say a vaccine takes, you know, 10 years or so to be developed. Can you break it down for us a little bit and help us understand how that process went um, and maybe help provide some reassurance that, you know, it actually was a very valid scientific process um, that we went through. It just, you know, we had kind of all these conditions that helped um, with the development of the vaccine more quickly than it would normally be developed. Thank you, Mr. for that question. I think it is absolutely appropriate for people to say, what? Did you guys cut corners? Is this safe? I think that's a completely reasonable question because if you know anything about vaccine developments, and traditionally it takes years to sort of uh, uh, create a vaccine. If you think about the polio vaccine and all of the vaccines that we've had in the past, it's sort of really sort of hallmarked and flagship this approach to immunity um, and public health immunizations. Um, it's appropriate to say, how did this get done in a year? Um, but I will uh, hopefully... Uh, assure your audience that it's not because corners were cut, it's innovation that allowed us to sort of uh, decrease that time. And so part of that is the process that has traditionally been taken to, to create a vaccine was um, sort of revamped um, with new technology. And that new technology is essentially, instead of sort of doing a whole vaccine um, this is essentially the approach that has traditionally been taken. Um, new technology and understanding of the genetic code allows us to do uh, or create this process of MR, MR, mRNA vaccines. Um, and this is not the first mRNA vaccine. Um, there have been success in mRNA vaccines in the past, and that is why this approach is taken. But the mRNA vaccine... So before you, before you go into that, what's the difference <laughs> between the mRNA? Um, you know, we're getting science-y. I love talking science but What's the difference between between the mRNA vaccine and let's say a regular, like a flu vaccine, a live attenuated vaccine. So essentially, when you do the live vaccine, you have the whole vaccine. So essentially, you're trying to create the whole virus, and then you're trying to um, decrease the parts of the virus that actually hurt people, right? So you take that out, you sort of blunt those pro uh, processes out, um, for lack of a better term, so that the person's body can be exposed to as many of the proteins of that live virus, but not be hurt, harmed by that live virus, right? Um, with the mRNA vaccine, we're not actually exposing people to the virus, right? 
right? Essentially, what we're able to do is understand if you, um, early in the vaccine process, early in this COVID process, they identified the genetic code of uh, the coronavirus-19, essentially understanding that code helped you identify places where we um, thought the uh, virus was able to create the most harm. You might have heard people talk about spike proteins, these types of things. And so different proteins that are affiliated with or associated with this coronavirus, um, we're able to identify those proteins. That means we can identify their structure. That means that we can identify uh, or use that those structures as targets. Um, and so the mRNA vaccine is really just focusing on a select group of proteins. Now, the issue here in a whole virus um, vaccine, you actually have the whole thing. And so what scientists do now and with these mRNA vaccines is right, try to come up with the right combination of targeted proteins. So the right combination of protein targets um, and have uh, mRNA vaccines, so the messenger RNA um, as part of the, the actually what gets introduced into the vaccine. So again, the science is creating that right combination of protein targets and they, they test that out in early stage vaccine development. Um, do you have enough? Do you have the right combinations? And then once you advance the research to a point where you start to feel comfortable that you have that right combination, then they're introducing it to healthy individuals and then to sick individuals. And that's where we're able to get the efficacy rates of the different vaccines. And so that efficacy rate, that's how I'm able to say, don't you shouldn't be concerned about this vaccine in terms of whether it's um, effective because we tested the efficacy the same way we'd have, we would have tested the whole viral vaccine efficacy, right? Through a clinical mm -hmm. trial. So the data we're collecting is not shortchanged, it's not being altered to accommodate the different innovation that has happened. But it's, it's specifically, we are testing how effective it is in present, preventing infection and, and preventing death, um, as the case may be for COVID. And so we tested that the same way we would have tested um, any other whole vaccine. And so I think the thing that I was really impressed with, you know, because even as a physician, you know, I'm not a geneticist, I'm not, a, you know, a microbiologist. And so I even had to go and do some research myself. And uh, what I was, was impressed with was the sheer numbers of people who were involved in these trials, right? When we think about an average clinical trial for like multiple sclerosis, you know, we might have 1,200 people, you know, maybe a couple thousand people who are in that trial before we determine a medicine is effective. Like there were thousands upon thousands of people, like for the Pfizer trial, there were over, I think, 35,000. For Moderna, there was like 28,000 people. Half of those got vaccine, half of those got placebo. But I think it's unprecedented to have an actual treatment come to the market where 30,000 people have already had it by the time it actually comes to market. So I found that really reassuring. And I think something that was also interesting that I'd like for you to touch on was, um, what were the proportions of minorities who were in these trials? Like, were we included in these clinical trials um, about the COVID for the COVID vaccines? And Mitzi, I think that is a great question. This is where we get into the equity, uh, uh, sort of the equity that's built into our research infrastructure that consistently needs to be addressed. Um, and so essentially early in pandemic, there was just so much momentum. We got to do something, right? We got to fix, we got to act fast. Um, and so when the when we were at the stage of sort of recruiting patients for clinical trials, um, which happened around March of last year um, for some, for I think the Moderna vaccine, um, essentially that the goal was to recruit people and to have people volunteer. Now there's a 
a, a gap. There is a, a huge infrastructure gap in how we recruit patients for clinical trials that has been that preceded COVID um, and that will go on beyond COVID that we're actually COVID has brought attention to. And we're trying to use this time, the spotlight of racial social justice and inequities that's going on in our larger society, but also that's being highlighted by COVID to address these issues. So what does that mean? So what I mean is that they acted. They recruited patients, volunteer base, who could be, um, who was interested in joining the study. And we got what we normally get, meaning that the studies weren't that diverse. Um, now, I will say that um, Moderna recognized that at um, in an early stage, a sort of review of their results and their analysis that they actually hadn't enrolled a high number of diverse pati uh, patients uh, into their study. And so what did they do? They did uh, a second arm of the study where they went back and recruited individuals of diverse backgrounds from um, Jackson, Mississippi area to sort of specifically have more diversity within their trial. Why is that important? Well, for the most part, we're all the same, right? And we we talk about that. We say that in sort of loose terms, you know, our, we all bleed red, right? Despite some historical inaccuracies. Um, right. And we all breathe and our bodies function relatively the same. However, there are population differences and there can be population differences in our immune function and system, but also around comorbidities, their prevalence differences around certain comorbidities that could affect side effects or responses or the effectiveness of a drug um, that we just want to rule out that that's out there, right? And so it's important to have diverse populations because if you don't check, you won't know. And although we do believe that for the for most of medicine, for a large part of what we do and what we do in sort of this space, that it will function the same for everyone. If you don't look, you won't know. And so it is. it was important for Moderna to make that step to go back and look to sort of increase the diversity so that they could actually say, is there something to be concerned about here? Is there less effectiveness in certain patient populations? And so what they found was no. And generally for the Moderna vaccine, the effectiveness was above 90%. Um, for preventing uh, COVID, uh, as well as the same with the Pfizer vaccine. So, I mean, the results were extremely exciting. They were coming but essentially back to back with Moderna and Pfizer in December, and everyone was really excited. Um, yeah. I will say then there is one thing that we have seen that is a difference with the vaccines. Um, and I think that it's important to, to take a second to step uh, to talk about it because it uh, involves this last vaccine that's been approved, the J&J, &J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, which has sh shown a slightly um, reduced eff uh, effectiveness rate. Um, and so essentially for Johnson & Johnson, the overall effectiveness has been about 72%. Um, in the U.S. And then in South Africa, it was around 58%. Now, this is important to understand. Um, this is not believed to be a ethnic racial um, difference in effectiveness. With the South Africa study, the reason the efficacy is believed to be lower is because of these variants that you've heard about. Um, and in South Africa, there emerged a, a variant that seemed to be a lot more severe um, in terms of its outcome and, and coronavirus phenotype. And so the vaccines had been developed, um, you know, those proteins I talked about, that variant wasn't, isn't believed to be widely prevalent in the cases that um, were used to develop the vaccine. Now, what does that mean? Right now, the, the push is to vaccinate people because right now, 
Um, although we have started to see these variants in the U.S., they're not believed to be widely prevalent um, right now, at least based on the data we have. But again, the data is if you don't look, you don't know. <laughs> and, um, you know, and so there's that question. But if we are all vaccinated, um, at least against the sort of more common strain or those earlier strains of coronavirus, then we can reduce the amount of transmission of coronavirus in the population is, is believed to. Um and then these these variants may pop up, but at least you're sort of not having widespread um, exposure. And that's in and and this idea of the variants is why we want to be vigilant and, and then why we want to sort of stay cautious while we're still optimistic about having these vaccines, because there's still things to be concerned about. Um, and, and these variants are something that are. Essentially, it's, it's essentially the variants got introduced to the party. They're the, the you know the the only one at the party, so they stand out. And they and 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 when they're at the party, they're able to mingle a, a lot. And so, essentially, if we are not masking, if we are not taking precautions, if we're getting together in large groups and just sort of uh, sort of uh, engaging as we did pre-COVID, then the opportunity to produce more new variants is going to be there. Not every variant is going to be severe, and so most variants won't be. But the more you introduce, you know, the more mingling the virus is able to do, the more likely you're to have these rare variants that can be more severe. And in that case, what people are talking about is we'll have to have booster shots for the vaccine um, essentially to adjust these new variants. So I love that analogy of mingling at a party. So we are coming off of All-Star Weekend in Atlanta, which we <laughs> hope was virtual, but was not virtual because I had people calling me talking about they were in town and I was like, stay away from me. Um, <laughs> I don't want to see you. I don't want any of your germs. Um, and so I think that really underscores the fact um, for us, again, not to be complacent, not to sit on our laurels and say, all right, well, if other people are vaccinated, that's going to protect me and let me just go and live my best life and not have any masks on. Because I always describe it like vaccine, like like viruses are smart. So, you know, they want to survive. Um, so when we start doing things like vaccinating or finding treatments, if as long as they have a bunch of people to kind of grow in, they're going to get smarter and smarter and find ways to skirt around around the different treatments that we've developed. And so we don't want to be behind the eight ball before we even begin. Like, you know, there, there are, you know, an increasing numbers of people who are vaccinated. I have been vaccinated. Um, uh, several of my family members who are older have been vaccinated. Um, but certainly there are lots of people who are not protected and not covered. Um, and th I think the trials are just beginning for children. Um, so yeah. we still have a long way to go. So let's not get comfortable and give COVID time to become resistant to this vaccine that we're just now getting access to. And I think that's extremely, extremely important. All right, so let's go ahead and let's switch over and start answering some questions. I see some questions in the chat. You guys can drop your questions in the chat. So I'm gonna scroll back up here to the top and we'll start um, answering some of these questions. So Fawn says, how can you achieve herd immunity if you're still able to contract and transmit COVID after taking the vaccine? That's an excellent one. Why don't you take that one, Dr. Landry? Yeah, so um, I, I think the concept of herd immunity is something um, that was introduced as a potential policy approach to dealing with COVID that um, most public health experts were very concerned about. Um, you have to get to a critical mass 
of infections before you reach herd immunity. And in the case of COVID, that would mean a critical mass of deaths. Um, and so we are not at that space of herd immunity. Um, and so that's not necessarily the approach we want to take. We want to take the vaccination approach, which is um, essentially getting to that place where we're introducing immunity through the vaccine, not sort of crowding out the, uh, uh, the virus because everyone in the population has already gotten it. Um, so it's a slight difference. Um, but I will say that the reality is um, we are not sure um, about transmission post-vaccination. The reason being is that when you evaluate a research study, you have to formulate your questions on what you're evaluating. And, and for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, transmission of COVID post-vaccination wasn't the focus. It was the idea of looking at the severity of disease. Now, is there ability to go back and look at that? And absolutely. And um, there's definitely interest in looking at that data to go back and see, did people who were vaccinated that showed antibodies or antibody response to um, the vaccine, which is what we want to see, that um, did not have infection, did they actually, if we contact trace, can we um, trace those people back to other people who were exposed to that person and then therefore got the virus? Um, so there's interest in doing that. That's not the way the studies were designed. And so in terms of transmission, it's not something we can answer concretely right now. Can you, when you're vaccinated, still transmit the virus? The idea is it's potentially yes, um, but we don't know. Um, and so this idea of still being um, careful and cautious about what you do when you're vaccinated. So essentially, you, that's why we're not recommending big, large gatherings anymore. Um, just because you've gotten a vaccine, you don't necessarily get to go to um, a, a baseball game. And well, you know, it, it, a baseball game might be outdoors. And I think that at least in our state, they're opening up at 12% capacity, but we're still sort of creating these measures because we still want to be cautious even in vaccinated groups, um, because we don't know. It's a question that's out there, but it's a good question to ask. And, and hopefully we'll have the data to support an answer um, soon. Absolutely. And so, you know, again, I think, you know, this is really um, the beauty, but also the limitation of science, right? Because um, we were able to do something that probably a year ago, no one would have thought would have been achieved and that was getting this vaccine to market and getting several vaccines um, to market to be able to um, immunize people and introduce immunity to COVID. But at the same time, we are learning things in real time. So some information we won't find out until there have been more analyses of the data that's already been done, um, as well as looking at what we call real world evidence. So there are clinical trials which are very controlled and we get a lot of amazing information from them, but there's also the real world world where you have people who have those comorbidities or other conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, and we find out what happens in some of those groups. I even saw an article today that was talking about one of the vaccines that said there may have been some differences in effectiveness based on um, body mass index. So people who were more obese may not have had as much of an effect as those who were not, but they still had an effect from the vaccine. So there's a lot that we're learning, you know, so we're learning this. Um, it, is, it is a humbling lesson for for those of us in the scientific community, um, but also an amazing testament to what um, unification and sharing of information and collaboration can actually do, because um, I've seen some amazing things, especially in the MS community. All right, so let's go to the next question. Why is some, um, why are some dying a short time after the vaccine? Could, it, could a medical genetic test prevent that? 
Um, so, you know, there have been some reports of people who have died after the vaccine, but I think that this is not something that is happening on a common basis. And we don't really know a lot of the details of what happened in those cases. Um, so I think it's difficult to say we don't know why because we don't know details. A lot of times we find things, someone will publish a report on Twitter or someone will say something on Facebook. Um, but I think there have to be more analyses to understand if there really is, um, you know, uh, mortality associated with the vaccine. Do you have anything that you want to add to that, uh, Dr. Landry? Yeah, I, I think it is important to point out the case of the anecdote. So, you know, right now we're in a different information age. I can post something on social media um, with the information I have. It's not necessarily robust enough for someone to sort of take that information and really sort of understand the context and, and the validity of it. Um, but it's out there, right? And I can put it out there. And so there's there's this issue of anecdotes. There's this information um, in, uh, issue of sort of how we can really sort of vet these cases. And then the idea is if that's one in a million, you know, then that could just be a one-off. Um, but I will say is there are some concrete things that we are thinking about in this space in terms of response to vaccines. So well, the first thing is that we do know, especially for the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, it's a two-dose vaccine vaccination process. And so there could be someone who gets the first dose um, and exposed to COVID um, prior to right, right before they got that first dose. So they already had COVID. It just wasn't known when they got vaccinated. And so they went through the disease process because they got vaccinated having already just contracted COVID, but not showing symptoms. So there's some of that um, that's coming out, I think, in some of the anecdotes are believed to. There's also those who could have gotten the first dose, um, but contracted COVID prior to getting the second dose, right? And so that second dose is really to, meant to rev up the immune system. So the first, do first dose primes the immune system, that second dose revs it up. Um, and there may be some people then that, you know, that may not have contracted it should it have happened after the second dose, but in that interim may have contracted the, the, the disease. Additionally, there is a, a concern, and this is true for every um, vaccination process, um, that there are some people whose immune system, you know, responds negatively to the vaccine itself, right? And so this is why in COVID, if you have gotten vaccinated, they ask you to stay um, if you are relatively healthy in the room for 15, 20 minutes before you leave to see if you have one of those uh, allergic reactions to the vaccine itself. It's believed to be rare in, in every example that we have seen. It is a rare thing, but it does exist. Um, and then if you have a comorbid condition, so you're someone who is at higher risk, they actually ask you to stay in the room a little longer to make sure that you're not going to have that, again, an allergic reaction to the vaccine. That is possible, um, but that's true of, of other vaccines that you may have had. And the, the process of sort of trying to guard against that is monitoring you for a longer period of time to ensure that that's not what's going on. Absolutely. And I know that that's been a very frequent question for my patients about um, concerns about allergic responses. I tell them I'm one of the most allergic people probably on the earth. And I live in Georgia where, you know, there's <laughs> plenty to be allergic to, um, you know, but again, Anyone who is um, considering getting the vaccine or has access to it, you should have a conversation with your healthcare provider. I had a conversation with my allergist and he um, very, explained very well that the allergic reactions were fairly rare. We talked about a type of game plan if I were to have that. Um, but again, we can treat allergies. We yeah. can treat allergic reactions. 
much better than we can treat COVID. Okay. So again, you know, um, the things I think that are really important is that what we're finding over time is that certainly, you know, we've had half a million people who have died of COVID. It's serious, right? Um, young people, older people, people who are healthy, people with, with chronic conditions. Um, and I think the other piece that I think is missing and probably not talked about as much is that for many people, COVID is a chronic condition. There are people who have issues and symptoms for many months after the initial infection. Um, so it is not the same as some of the other viruses that we encounter, like the flu, where you may be sick for a couple of weeks and then it goes away. Certainly there are some people who have that experience and have very mild cases, but even some of those who have considered uh, what would be considered a mild case that's not hospitalized may have symptoms for many, many months to come that may affect their function. So we really want to prevent COVID. Like that's the goal is to try to yeah. prevent COVID. And that's why this vaccine um, is so important. All right. So I'm going to put up the next question, which is probably one uh, for me. Is there going to be a trial for MS patients who have received the shot or I'm assuming received the vaccine is what um, is being asked? I do not know of a clinical trial um, that will be done specifically for people with MS who have received the COVID vaccine. There are registries uh, around the world, and there is a registry here in the U.S. Uh, that is for people who have had COVID um, or who contract COVID. And some of the things that we found from that registry are that people who have progressive MS, who have more disability, uh, people who are Black, Black people um, tend to have worse outcomes from COVID, right? So again, if you have those extra conditions, those comorbid conditions, bad diabetes, hypertension, um, if you are older, if you have more progressive disease, more disability, if you're Black, you tend to have a worse outcome from COVID. So again, um, we will probably see more information as more people are getting vaccinated. Um, and I'm sure that there probably will be some research surrounding those who have been vaccinated. Uh, we do also do not yet know the numbers or about the people people in the clinical trials, the larger clinical trials who may have had MS. We don't have that breakdown yet. So we don't have any numbers on who in the trials actually had MS and how they did. But we do know a little bit about how people with MS do with COVID. And although MS itself doesn't uh, increase your risk, some of those factors that I just talked about um, can increase the risk for more severe outcomes. All right, here's another question. Do we get to make a decision what vaccine we want to take? I'll let you have that one, Dr. Landry. <laughs> it's a great question. And I and I think that in uh, sort of the design of things, it's just not possible right now. Right now, we have vaccine shortages in many states um, where the demand far out uh, ways the the supply um, that's been greatly reduced in 2021. Um, we're you know and it will be even further reduced um, with the once the Johnson and Johnson vaccine actually starts to penetrate the market. Um, I, I think that the issue here is that if you were to be selective and say I want this vaccine over that, that might preclude you from getting the vaccine um, that's going to be locally available in your community, the one that's going to be first offer, uh, offered to you. Um, and so right now the recommendation is that you not be concerned about which vaccine to use. Right now, all of the vaccines are considered effective. And I'm going to be very clear. I did talk about the Johnson & Johnson having a slightly lower effectiveness 
um, and, and sort of comparative effect and, uh, effectiveness compared to both the Pfizer and Moderna. Um, but that was just in overall cases of COVID. But what we have seen for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that it is highly effective. So it's 87% effective in um, preventing severe COVID. Um, and so that's almost at the 90% that the Moderna and Pfizer are at. And so if we, I mean, we think about COVID, it's, it's really the deaths and severe COVID that we're most concerned about. Um, and so that makes that vaccine far more important and effective than nothing, right? And so compare that, right? So you don't want to choose, I want to wait till I can get this. So I'll get nothing until I get that with no control over when you might get something else. So the recommendation is if you are offered a vaccine, take it. Um, do not sort of be over concerned about your research and about individual vaccines. Right now, the supply is such that in most places, you are only going to be offered one and there's no guarantee that the other one is actually going to make it to, um, to, to sort of your market or where you are, where you're able, eligible to get the vaccine. Yeah. And I think that's a, an excellent point. Um, you know, we'd rather you be vaccinated than to wait. Um, and, you know, I actually talked to some of my colleagues across the pond um, in the UK and the J&J &J vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson one is the one that's most prevalent. And the whole, they have like 18 million people that have been vaccinated already. Um, and so again, you know, we want people to form some immunity and we don't really have trials that compare the different vaccines. So we can't really say what this one is compared to that one, but we do know that they work. We do know that they're efficacious. We do know that generally they are safe. So make sure you talk to your doctor, make a decision. If you have one that's available to you, by and large, most people should, um, if they can get vaccinated. So I'm going to address this next question, which I see a couple of different iterations in. Tracy Todd, hi Tracy, asks, should MS patients adjust their DMT schedule when preparing to get vaccinated? And that's an excellent question that we've been talking about a lot in the MS community. One of the concerns with our MS therapies is that many of them suppress the immune system and you need the immune system working in order for you to mount a response to something like a vaccine. For most of the medications, most of the disease-modifying medications, those are the injectables, the oral therapies, the pills, and the infusions, for most of them, there wouldn't need to be an adjustment in when you were able to get vaccinated. For some of our therapies, especially the ones that deplete or kill certain cells, so we're talking our B-cell therapies like ocrelizumab or rituximab, um, possibly um, cladribine and alemtuzumab for those types of medicines, um, there are some recommendations that are published on the MS Society website uh, that suggest that you may be time your vaccine at least a month or so before you get your next infusion. But if you've gotten your infusion, at least maybe, um, you know, eight to 12 weeks after you get that infusion. So we want to time it in the middle because when we deplete those cells or we kill those white blood cells, we want to give them a little bit of time to grow back um, so that your body can mount a proper response. However, most people are able to mount some type of immune response. So if, you know, this is your chance to get a vaccine and the chances going to pass you by. You may not be able to get it. We recommend everybody get some type of coverage. But again, 
always, always talk to your doctor, talk to your neurologist um, and help, you know, have them help you make that decision. But there may be some timing issues for some of those depleting therapies where we kill immune cells. And so I'm going to put up the next question. Um, So this person asked, what is the purpose of the vaccination if we can still catch uh, COVID? Yeah. So, you know, I think here's the issue um, in terms of catching COVID. Can you contract COVID once you're vaccinated? And the answer is it depends, right? Because we don't have concrete data. But there are some cases where it looks as if if you've been vaccinated and you get exposed to a variant that you could still um, contract COVID of that um, variant form of the virus. Um, But again, that number of cases where we've seen that happen is so small. And so ultimately what we believe is happening is that your one, uh, two things, sort of two things are happening and I wanted to address the first. So first of all, we don't just have variant forms of COVID. We also have the COVID that was exposed that the vaccinations were, were developed on, right? You can prevent that. And so, and again, it's a 90% effective or 87% effective in reducing the severe form of COVID. So preventing death. And I think preventing death is a good reason to get vaccinated, even if you can still catch COVID. Um, And so think about it that way. So you're preventing death or severe COVID, even though you're maybe still able to contract um, the, the disease. Additionally, your risk of contracting the disease, so, you know, sort of the effectiveness rate around 90%, you, you're sort of giving yourself a much better chance of not um, ending in that sort of 8% mark or sort of 13% mark, right? So it, essentially, I think you're, re- you're increasing your likelihood to stay healthy, um, but you're greatly reducing your rate um, to uh, prevent death. And I think that's sort of where we're focusing on. Now, the issue about the variants, which is a little bit different of whether or how effective the vaccines are um, for the strains of COVID that they were developed for. Now, the thing about the variants is that the what we're sort of thinking about is the vaccination, which is sort of helping us with our overall immunity to COVID, plus normal public health precautions that we've been taking that we still are advocating that you take. So the mask wearing um, and social distancing and sort of being uh, sort of mindful about that should sort of reduce your ability to contract the variants, right? And so, yes, there's always going to be this possibility right now, foreseeable, that there's these variants that are popping up, these variants that exist. Um, But the reality is that we essentially were in a, a crowded room, right? And so essentially what you're saying is that 70% of the room is a type A personality, right? Or a, a sort of a type A um, condition. And then, you know, you have 30% of the room that you're working with. Um, and so the right idea here is that every everything that we can do to reduce the risk of contracting COVID and also reduce the risk of dying from COVID is something that we should do. So the purpose of vaccination, even though you can still catch the disease, is to prevent um, one from dying, but also just to sort of put on the full armor, right? I'm sort of going through a a, a sort of biblical reference here, but we got to put on the full armor. It'd be great if one thing prevented, but we have different components. And right now we're trying to employ them all. So the vaccination is one of those, one piece of that strategy, one piece of the armor that we have against COVID. Absolutely. And we'll take one last question and then we'll do some parting thoughts. Does one become contagious with COVID once they receive the COVID shot? 
So I, I think in terms of contagious is the idea is can you infect people with COVID um, from actually just having the vaccination itself? Um, and the answer to that is no. So you, you can imagine from a public health strategy, that would be a nightmare if once you got the shot, you were then able to, or the shot itself infected you with COVID. Um, so I just wanted to clarify, we did say that there was some question of whether you could still transmit COVID if you were vaccinated. And that transmission isn't from the exposure to the shot, it's from exposure to coronavirus in the community or where else you might have been exposed to it. So the idea is, can you still contract COVID and transmit it to others? That's the thing that we haven't really checked, but it's not the shot that would expose you to COVID and therefore make you infectious to other individuals. So the answer to that question is no. Yes. And that um, also kind of lends itself back to the conversation we had earlier about live vaccines and mRNA vaccine. This is an mRNA vaccine. They're not even giving you the whole vaccine. You know, even if you received a live attenuated vaccine, you would get the vaccine minus the harmful part, but we're not even giving you that much, right? So you're just getting the certain proteins so that your body can mount a response. Now, some people will have a reaction after their second vaccine. So many people will say with the first vaccine, they had some arm soreness. And oftentimes with the second one, they may have some fatigue. Some people may have fever. Um, they may have chills, some of those symptoms, but that's your body mounting the immune response. That does not mean that you're infected with COVID, that you're transmitting COVID from the vaccination. Now you could have COVID have gotten it from somebody else, but just getting the uh, vaccine um, and having those symptoms is not mean that you have COVID. Well, this has been an amazing and very robust discussion. Thank you so much for coming on, um, Dr. Landry. Um, if you have any parting thoughts, um, we'd love to hear them before we before we get out of here. And, uh, and I'll tell everybody about our next episode of Brain Chat after that. So I would say that it's still important. We, as I started the conversation, we are really optimistic and excited about sort of what's coming in terms of innovations and preventions in our public health armor to help combat COVID. Um, but it's still really important that you do your part. And as though, you know, policies and where we live may dictate sort of the rules around preventing COVID, um, it's still important that you educate yourself and think about if that policy or that decision maker makes decisions for you and think of govern yourself accordingly. I say that because we have states that are opening up fully um, ideas of indoor dining and sort of, and then I understand the anxiety and the pressure that people are feeling and really wanting to get back to normal. But I do think it's important that we educate ourselves and that we think about um, in terms of uh, thinking about the best ways in which we can protect ourselves and our families and making that decisions for ourselves. So I still would say mask up and also socially distance and sort of be appropriate and mindful as you go on. And if you are um, eligible to get the vaccine, by all means, get vaccinated. We want to protect our population. We want to all sort of see the other side of this. Thank you, Mitzi. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This was amazing. Um, and we had a great discussion. I may have to do a part two because we still have so many questions that we weren't able to get to today. Um, but I'm so grateful for this conversation, for being able to reach our community and talk about these things that are extremely important. Where can people find you, Dr. Landry? <laughs> well, so I am um, currently at Harvard. You can always um, reach me um, at LMG Landry on Twitter um, or look at Latrice Landry on LinkedIn or other venues like that. Um, and, and by all means, reach out to me. I, I love talking and community engagement is a big part of what I do. 
awesome sauce. All right. Well, this has been your second episode of Brain Chat with the Nerdy Neurologist. We have had the amazing Dr. Latrice Landry with us today talking all things COVID vaccine. Hopefully we provided some information that will help you um, make decisions. And, you know, as always, go back and talk to your healthcare provider. Every decision is an individualized decision. But if you want to check out some recommendations specifically for MS, if you go to the National MS Society's website, um, they have some recommendations that they've posted and guidelines for people with MS that talk specifically about some of our disease modifying therapies and that also talk about um, the vaccine in general. So we will see you in two weeks on Monday night and we will be talking about diversity in research and a little bit about the new National African American MS registry. Thank you guys so much for joining us and have a wonderful evening.